27, 1 to 28. Melchizedek the priest. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the feet of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi to become a priest to collect a tenth from the people that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who has decided to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, pays the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek, Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Jesus liked Melchizedek. If perfection could have been attained to the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from the tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if other priests, like Melchizedek, appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn, and you will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, and apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. The law appoints his high priest men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Well, good morning, non-camping spring gardeners. <laughs> uh, Pastor Sam started that tradition of going off to camp together for a weekend before I had retired. And so while I was still working here, I always felt, uh, no one told me I needed to go, but I felt like I needed to come up with a good reason why I could not go. And so one of the joys of retirement is not needing to be that creative every August because the honest truth is I will go on that camp 
when the word Helton appears on the list of camping opportunities. Because when I said to, uh, actually, to the pastors, you've invited me on the week that you're on out here, they said, well, you're kind of still a pastor. So I'm going to do a kind of still a pastor thing. And down here in the front corner of this church, we have a lovely young couple named Jeremy and Suzanne, and they are going to be married here next Saturday. And I... I think that it would be wonderful if we could pray for them before their wedding day. And in our usual way, I'd like to ask you just to raise your hands toward this corner. And Father, we ask you to bless Jeremy and Suzanne as they prepare not just for a wedding, but for marriage. We ask you to give them insight, hope, strengthen their love, grant them humor We pray, Lord, that all of the nervousness they will feel this week and especially Friday and Saturday, we just, we ask you to ease that. And we pray that you will keep them peaceful in you and that their wedding itself will be a wonderful celebration and testimony to you, the God who is love. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who worked his very first miracle to help a wedding go well. Amen. And now, down to business. (laughs) Not only did they ask me to speak on the week when everyone would be in camp, but they said, and while you're at it, why don't you explain Melchizedek? (laughs) So, and I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's the way I've pronounced it all my life. I I pronounce it confidently and hope that's enough. But I want to suggest to you that Melchizedek is, in fact, the D.B. Cooper of the Bible. Are are you familiar with D.B. Cooper? Any of you remember who D.B. Cooper was? Uh, A couple of people are are nodding, and they're the ones who concern me. The (laughs) The ones who are looking rather blankly at me and saying, no, I'm going to say, don't worry about it, because it's kind of a trick question. No one knows who D.B. Cooper was. In fact, if you know who D.B. Cooper was, the FBI really wants to talk to you, (laughs) along with a number of other law enforcement agencies across North America. In 1972, a man bought a ticket on a Northwest airline flight to Spokane, And he used the name Dan Cooper on the ticket. While the plane was in the air, he opened his briefcase to one of the flight attendants to show her that he was carrying a bomb. He said he was going to skyjack the plane, but he would let them land in Spokane and let all the passengers off if, while the passengers were getting off, they delivered to him $200,000 and a parachute. He got his briefcase and his parachute. The passengers got off. The plane took off, and he said, I want you to fly to Reno, Nevada, very low and very slow. And as the flight crew was flying the plane to Reno, a light came on in the cockpit cockpit, to say that a back hatch had been opened. And of course, 
When they landed the plane, they discovered that it was empty. Somewhere between when the hatch opened and the plane landed in Reno, the man named D.B. Cooper, or Dan Cooper, had walked down the hatch and parachuted out of the jet. Now, my first personal reflection on that story is, it would take way more than $200,000, even in 1972 money, to get me to do something like that. The, uh, of course, the police began searching for him, and during one of the very early news, concert, uh, news conferences, a reporter got the name wrong. They were saying it was Dan Cooper, but he reported it was D.B. Cooper, and ever since, this guy's been known as D.B. Cooper. So he's got a fake name for his fake name, and nobody has any idea who he is. It's a complete mystery, but there's, for some reason, there's something really compelling about the search for D.B. Cooper. And uh, there's a whole cottage industry that has grown around this, including a number of websites, conferences where people travel thousands of miles to discuss who he might have been, and uh, a recent documentary on Netflix that some of you might have seen that it, it's okay, is what I'm going to say. But that's, this all brings me to Melchizedek, who is the D.B. Cooper of the Old Testament. We're all trying to figure out who he was. The discussion about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, and, you know, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, it, we're never really told. Do you know who I think it was? I think it was Melchizedek. <laughs> or maybe D.B. Cooper. I'm not sure. But anyhow, this, this discussion about Melchizedek really began back in chapter 4 that Scott talked to us about a number of weeks ago in which uh, the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All through Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to explain how it is that Jesus improves upon the faith of the Old Testament. And what he's trying to say here is that in Jesus, we have a better priest than we can find anywhere in the Old Testament. And so Melchizedek kind of, he kind of circles around back and forth for the next couple of chapters to get to Melchizedek until we get to chapter 7. And, and you may have had a hard time hearing that as it was read from camp this morning. So I'll come back in a few minutes and read some of the most significant parts of it to you. But before I get to that, I think we need to understand why it is we need a priest. What is so important about having a great priest? The purpose of a priest in the Old Testament, uh, priests were given by the law of Moses. They were provided by the law of Moses, and their job was to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. 
And I think that we have kind of a distorted view of what the sacrifices in the Old Testament were like and what they were about. Because the ancient Hebrews and certainly the sacrificial system of Moses was not nearly so preoccupied with sin and human sinfulness as later the Pharisees would become and after that the Western Christians. Though sometimes it's a little hard to know the difference. The sacrificial system dealt with quite a number of life issues. Very few, actually, of the sacrifices of the Old Testament dealt directly with sin. The word for sacrifice in Hebrew, which I knew before I stood up, uh, but it's okay. You know, preachers, we use Hebrew and Greek just to impress you. So uh, I, I can look it up if you need to be impressed, but you're probably okay as it is. And I'll just tell you that what it, it's got as its root to get close to, to draw near. And so the purpose of sacrifices was to get close to God. And there were a lot of ways people would do that. But probably the most common were sacrifices in which someone would offer an animal or something in a ritual. The, the whole thing about this is that it's a ritual, and the ritual is important. And you offer this complete animal to God as a way of saying, God, I offer you my complete self. Just as this animal is giving all of its life, I want to give you all of my life. Some of the sacrifices... Uh, had to do with being thankful, kind of like we, we might have a Thanksgiving Sunday or we might have in, in some traditions, there's a thank offering Sunday and people bring in pumpkins and corn cobs and all kinds of things to celebrate the fact that God has given us so much. And there were grain offerings and other offerings that were given just as a way of saying to God, thank you that my work has been productive this year. My personal favorite of the Old Testament sacrifices was called the peace offering. And here's what you did. You got a good cow or a good pig. Well, no, I guess you're Jewish. You don't get a good pig. Take that back. I would get a good pig, but because I'm not. Anyway, I got kind of off track there for a second. You, get, you take an animal and you have a huge barbecue and you invite everyone. You invite the priests that are in your town. You invite your friends. You invite your family, your in-laws. You invite everyone. And everyone enjoys this barbecue together. And off to the side, <clears throat> there is a portion of the meat, a portion of the meal that is set aside so that God can enjoy the barbecue. So that God can join you and your family and your friends. It's kind of like the tailgate party of the Old Testament don't you love that idea that God would come to your party? So in these sacrifices, they weren't just about being sinners that need to be forgiven. They were about being humans that need to invite God into every part of our human living. We need to invite God into our work. We need to invite God into our families. who need to invite God into our relationships. who need to invite God into our failures who invite God into our hopes and our aspirations and even invite God into our national life and into our community, communal life. And the high priest 
was kind of the head honcho of the priests. And he in particular would offer the most significant sacrifices for the nation, for the nation's righteousness and holiness. And so this writer, this author of Hebrews is trying to suggest to us that in the new covenant, in the new arrangement between us and God, the new binding agreement, we might call it, that Jesus is a better priest. But there's a problem because priests were provided by the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was very careful to stipulate that a priest had to be part of the Levite tribe, a descendant of Moses' son, Aaron. And Jesus was not a Levite. Jesus was from the tribe of David, the house of David. He was Judean. He, he was from the tribe of Judah. He had no right to be a priest according to the law that provided the priesthood. So the writer of Hebrews flips through his Old Testament to try to make an argument out of the Old Testament that it was acceptable for Jesus to be a priest. And he lands upon an obscure passage in Genesis chapter 14. And this, this passage, here's, here's what it says to us. I'm, I'm going to wait a second. I want to I dive down a little rabbit hole for a minute. We're only going to get this if we understand that first century Jews read, understood, and talked about the Bible very differently than we do. I once had a rabbi say to me, the problem with you Christians is that you go into the Bible looking for nuggets of truth, whereas we go into the Bible looking for meaning. And we, particularly since the Protestant movement began, have sought to read the Bible in a very factual, literal kind of way. We look at it as an encyclopedia of facts. The people like Jesus and Paul and whoever it is who wrote Hebrews looked at the Bible quite differently. They looked at these as, as histories and the most important part of these histories and thoughts is not their factuality or their literalness. The most important part is their meaning. After all, what does it matter that a man named Abraham met a man named Melchizedek three or 4,000 years ago? It's not really in, in one way. It, you know, it's not really of very great significance, but the, the author of Hebrews says this has got some incredible meaning. And if we continue to read the Bible thinking that it's all about giving us facts and literal data, we may miss the big meanings that it has for us. So I want you to imagine today, well, first, I'm going to, let, me, let me read you. This is what we know about Melchizedek. This is all we know about Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14, starting at 17. After his return from the, de 
defeat of a guy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. So you, know, you can see why this is interesting. He, he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham give him, gave him one-tenth of everything. And that's what we know about Melchizedek. That's all the data we have. He is mentioned possibly, probably, one time later on in the Bible, in Psalm 110, which is a psalm David wrote about a future king to come to Israel. Uh, uh, we would now call it a messianic king to come to Israel. And he says, you are a priest forever, a king under the order of Melchizedek. And th th this is a verse that will be quoted in Hebrews. The problem is that the word Melchizedek means righteous king. And so there are some Jewish translations of that psalm that say you are a king forever, a righteous king. Because what the Hebrew says is you are a king forever, Melchizedek. And so that, you know, that psalm itself is a little bit obscure, you know, even in terms of what it means. Now, imagine using our usual way of interpreting the Bible, using, using what, what's called Protestant biblical interpretation and its rules. I, I came before you today, and we did not have the book of Hebrews. Doesn't exist. All we have to go on is Genesis chapter 14. And I said to you, okay, guys, I'm going to explain to you who this character in Genesis chapter 14 is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you about him. Just follow along with me. Uh, he was a priest of the Most High God. Check. We saw that in Genesis. As Abraham was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him, Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. Check. We got that. His name in the first place means king of righteousness. Check. We got that. He's also king from a place, I, I didn't point this out, called Salem. And Salem means peace, so the king of peace. Without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So you see, Melchizedek was never born. How do you know he was never born? Do you see him being born in Genesis chapter 14? I don't. And Melchizedek never died. How do you know he never died? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. So Melchizedek is obviously eternal like the Son of God, Jesus. Now, this, just say, this is not the author of Hebrews making this point. Did say, I was telling you that. What would you say to me over lemonade? Man, I think you've lost it. You're, you are abusing the Bible. You're abusing the text by drawing meanings out of it that aren't really there because literally, factually, that's just an argument from silence. Of course, if Melchizedek was a human being, he died and he was born. We just don't know when it was. You might as well say that D.B. Cooper was eternal. 
because we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. If, if he was still alive today, he could be. He'd be somewhere probably around 90, but given the number of cigarettes he smoked on that plane, I don't think he's still alive. But you can make an argument. You can make the same argument that D.B. Cooper is eternal. If this was all about factual, literal data. And then he goes on, and he continues to make this kind of an argument. See how great he is. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect others from the people, tithes from the people, that is, from the kindred, although these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not belong to the Levites, this man who is not one of the people who's qualified by the law to be a priest, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him. And he says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, or in our case, tithes are received by those who are mortal to the other by one of whom it testifies he still lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I don't know if you followed all of that argument, but he's saying a couple of things. He's saying, first, it's clear that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because otherwise Abraham wouldn't have tithed to him. And what's more important is that Levi, the priest, the priestly clan, the guy who started the whole priesthood thing, he was actually in Abraham at the time that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So even the Levites... Tithe to Melchizedek, meaning that Melchizedek was superior to the Levites. Did you catch all that? Now, factually, you know, it's, it, it, it's hard to buy. But the meaning is really important. Because what the writer, again, and the writer is just using a Jewish way of arguing scripture to make his point that Jesus is the best priest we could ever have. Because the Levitical priesthood, the priest that people went to to offer up their sheep and their goats, but not their pigs, that, that priest was human. And anytime we have a religious system based on human performance, it is by nature frustrating, insecure, and anxious. What if the priest did it wrong? He's a human. You know, humans make mistakes. What if he did it wrong? Well, and this whole thing, I mean, the, the idea is it's a ritual. And the thing about rituals is you have to do them a certain way. What if the priest got it wrong? Or, or what if I offered my sacrifice for the wrong motives or I, I, I had the wrong thing going on in my heart when I offered the sacrifice? Does it count? 
What if I've done this thing to draw near to God, to get close to God, and at the end of it all, I don't feel any closer to God than I felt before the priest offered the sacrifice? I'd better go back. I'd better go back. Just, you know, if I, if I go 10 times, it's more likely that at least one of those times the priest is going to get it right. And if I know I'm not right, maybe if I keep going back and I, 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 should, I can show God my sincerity. And so in this human system where the priests die and, and things, it's just a continuation where things are never fully resolved because you're going to have to go back tomorrow. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, what he wants us to get out of this whole idea of Melchizedek is that with Melchizedek it lasts forever because Melchizedek lasts forever with Melchizedek you can count on it because it's not based on a human system of performance some of you know that I began this whole preaching thing many years ago in a tent in Tennessee. I was part of a traveling tent revival. I got to tell you, it seems to me not just like a different era. It seems to me like a different universe. But we would go, we would take this tent into a little town in the south, and we would set up the tent, and we would preach on a hot summer night until the sweat was dripping from our face onto our King James Bible. And then at the end of it all, we would give an altar call, by which I mean we would say to people, if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior, if you want to get saved, come up to the front and we'll pray with you. And by saved, we pretty much meant if when you die, you want to go to heaven instead of going to hell, you better walk up here tonight because you might get hit by a car tomorrow. And so people would come forward, and, and it got to the point that we, like we knew that the first question you asked, is this the first time you've come forward for salvation? Because it hardly ever was. People would be constantly coming back to rededicate their lives to Christ. And so we, we wanted to identify whether a person actually had made an act of faith in Jesus before or whether they were you know, coming back because they thought maybe they got it wrong the first time. And most of the times they, most of the times it was people who just weren't sure they got it right the first time they came forward. You know, maybe what it was is that they came forward and accepted Jesus and then they started using cuss words again. And they thought, well, maybe God is not happy with me anymore. Maybe I better go accept Jesus again. Or maybe they thought they didn't say the prayer right. When, when I had my life-altering experience in which I began to follow Jesus, my prayer was, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, I need help. And do you know what I found out about two months later? That prayer can't save you. Because you're supposed to say a sinner's prayer that says, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong. I know that your son Jesus died for me. I accept that by faith and I give my life to you. And then you can be saved. So like I knew I did it wrong. And, and for a little while I was worried, to, like, did it count? So you know what I did? I went back and did it right. And, and it's not just in traveling tent revivals that this happens. 
you're my brothers and sisters. You, you know me well enough for me to acknowledge to you that I am sometimes sinful. Can I say that to you? It's not going to upset you too much. I'm sure you've never noticed these things. Sometimes I run at the mouth a little bit. Sometimes I'm a little enthusiastic about getting my own way. Uh, you've never seen that. And you know, I got to tell you that sometimes I exhaust myself going back to God and saying, God, when am I going to get it right? And I'm serious, like even now, just saying this to you, it's bringing tears to my eyes because I so badly want to get it right. I would like to be a good man for just one day before I die. And if my salvation, if God's love for me depends upon me getting it right, if it depends upon my human performance, if it depends upon what I do, what I say, what I think, even what I believe, if it depends upon something that I have to do, I'm going to keep going back and back and back and back because I'm always going to be anxious and insecure. But what if, what if instead of depending on me, my salvation depends on God? What if instead of depending on something I do, say, believe, think, what if my salvation depends on just the fact that God loved me? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. You know, I've got it wrong, but I don't need to keep going back because I've confessed it already that I'm not enough. I know it already. It doesn't surprise me, or it shouldn't surprise me. Frankly, sometimes it still does, but it shouldn't. It doesn't surprise God. He knew. It's not as if God has forgotten the first time I told him I needed help. And it's not as if God were the kind of friend that we find really aggravating, who is easily offended. And when they are offended, they just kind of pull away from you and won't have anything to do for you for a little while until they get over it. God's not that. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy in time of need. It was fitting that we should have a high priest like Jesus. He is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
It's a beautiful day out there, even though you're not out camping. I hope you spend some time outside today. Maybe walk through the park, go sit on your deck, or stay home and watch golf on TV. You know what Jesus is doing the whole time you're doing whatever you are doing? He's talking to God about you. He is bringing you before God. He's bringing you to God through him. He he is so near to you, you couldn't get away from him if you tried. You may be aware of it. You may not be aware of it. That's what faith is about, is training ourselves to be aware of it. But he is so near to you, he's nearer to you than your own skin. And nothing you can do will drive him away. I'm convinced that nothing shall separate me from the love in Christ. Neither height nor depth. Neither life nor death. Neither sin nor doubt. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Faith is not the content of your doctrine. Faith is the ability to rely on the goodness of God at those times when you know you're not enough. You're not. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is. Father, help us be bold when we come to you. Help us feel assured and secure because our ability to be close to you isn't dependent on us, but on your desire to be with and in us. Holy Spirit, help us be aware of your filling and your presence even now again, we pray. Amen.